so I was attracted to geography as a discipline because I went through a very kind of like, you know, typical like environmentalist phase where I was like, oh, the world is ending and, and it's, um, it's, it's a real, it's a problem. So I, I, I kind of sort of my initial reaction was like, it's all because of globalization and global this and that. So I, I had a very kind of, we need to localize everything, right? <laughs> we need, and so I was attracted to geography because it's really, a lot of geography is really doing research on place, right? Like on place specific types of relationships, cultural, ecological relationships. <laughs> so that's what attracted me. I remember like applying to grad school and just being like, I want to study what local economies and I want, you know, anyone that's doing local stuff, I want to know about it. I can relate to that. I, w- I've, I have a marketing graphic design background, but I, you know, I was very attracted initially to that kind of localist lifestyle. I don't know if you listened to our last, it was two episodes ago, we talked to um, Greg Scharzer yes. and he wrote a whole book of why <laughs> localism is like actually not <laughs> that great, but it goes hand in hand with degrowth. And um, yeah, for sure. I don't want to skip ahead here, but do you let me just ask you this do you still think like the 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 world is ending do you still have that kind of like <laughs> well, dread? well I, I mean i think climate change is really i do think it's a, a real i don't know if i can swear or whatever but it's it's go, yeah go ahead it's yeah. fucking serious <laughs> shit we're in you know and it's, it's yeah it's, it's frightening um so i i do think there's some serious ecological things we have to face um and and actually what so I, I got into it. I, I sort of was interested in this kind of very romantic idea of the local, but then for whatever reason, I got kind of fascinated by oil and energy, and and I started thinking. Really, I started reading a lot more Marx and Marxism, and I started thinking about like how do we think about um, the historical era of fossil fuels as kind of specific to this kind of industrial regime of capitalism. And once I started looking to that, I started reading a lot of history and I started realizing, um, you know, the before before the kind of industrial revolution, before fossil fuels, it was a lot of localism. <laughs> it's a lot of local and agrarian economies. And that the main thing I kind of fixated on was that I realized like, oh, um, you know, 80 to 85% of energy use in pre-industrial times was muscle power. It was like hard labor and like what fossil yeah. fuels and industrial industrialism really did was kind of uh, create this new era of automatic machinery that kind of, you know, um, it all got channeled into capital accumulation. So that's not good, but right. it did kind of liberate society to a, a, a limited extent from this kind of very drudgery based agrarian type of thing. And so once I started Thinking about that, I kind of very quickly realized, okay, this kind of like happy localist agrarian vision that I had been naively attached to was just not where we needed to think. We need to think about things and we need to think about how can we build on this kind of industrial fossil fuel uh, system that we're, that, that has created the world in which we live. It's not even, even if we didn't like it, we have to kind of build a society out of that, that yeah, kind of industrial yeah. So totally. It, you know, localism is kind of one of those like 
rich man poor man things like <laughs> either have to be really rich or really poor to live a localist lifestyle yeah. and like if you're poor you're not doing it by choice like yeah. you have no choice and then if yeah. you're rich you have to have some money to and, and decide like i'm gonna i'm gonna be a localist now i'm gonna right. go to the farmer's market i'm gonna spend my day like tilling for a potato and then uh you know i don't have a phone you know like i don't need you know yeah. i don't need a phone to survive because i have enough money and like my needs are taken care of so all these things um yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's yeah. interesting because he brings up that contradiction that like all this technology liberated us in, in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. It liberated, you know, our constraints to, you know, having to, to labor so much in order yes. to get the things that we need to survive. The problem is that, um, you know, capitalism is an economic structure that's that extracts that profit, that, you know, that extra you know, stuff that we get from all this, these nice technical technological advances. So now we're like chasing this whole thing where we have to have more and more all the time to, to get our needs met, even though we shouldn't, we, it should be going the opposite direction. We should be like more and more relaxed, but we have to work harder and harder. Uh, It's that, it's that weird thing where uh, capitalism turns technology against us. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's insane. In the 1930s, you know, you know, not Marxists like Keynes were like, yeah, we're going to have 15 hour work weeks in a couple decades. It's gonna be, you know, we have this industrial abundance. It's going to be totally possible. And, uh, and now, you know, we work more hours than ever. And, yeah. you know, we can't even find a way to allow workers to, you know, go, go to the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> in, in a normal human scale. So you hear about that in Amazon. It's just like, it's it's so frustrating because the world could be it has the capacity to be so much better for yeah. so many more people and it's just such shit and drudgery for most people still and it's yeah it sucks it doesn't yeah. make any sense <laughs> no <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and uh, I just wanted to talk a little bit about a couple of of your big articles uh, the most recent one was the revenge of the plans in the trouble which is yeah. an online magazine or journal. Mm-hmm um so yeah i mean it sounds like you care about this stuff so uh you know the article goes over the life cycle of the green new deal um starting with that that very uh painting the picture of that memory of aoc and the sunrise kids uh sitting in nancy pelosi's office um with the the optics of a mass movement with clear demands um so in 2018 i know for me like uh, that was a very compelling image at the time uh, to you, like in your position and where you were in, in your thoughts with all this stuff. Uh, what was compelling about, about that to you at that time, like in t- 2018, Matt? <laughs> well, you know, I think we were still in the kind of fog of, you know, the, what the fuck Trump just got elected like yeah. how the hell did yeah. that happen and, and and obviously we need a new kind of politics to combat this kind of right-wing nationalism and obviously those of us who were full-on on the bernie train in 2016 felt like we had that kind of politics that could have countered trump at least we thought that at the time and um and so there was this real energy in that in that that i felt at that time that you know like there, um, the beauty of a lot of the, the, the 
the sort of Bernie moment was that he had these very clear demands that were very simple that any old person could understand, like um, free healthcare for everyone. <laughs> like, yeah. And um, that's why he was so popular. Yeah. And so it was very, you know, very easy um, demands that people obviously could see um, would improve their lives. And so between 2016 and 2018, I think the climate movement was kind of, you could tell there was a sense that they needed something like the people even were saying, like, we need like a Medicare for all for climate change. We need a kind of politics that's clearly about improving people's material lives. And that's very easy to understand. And so I felt like in that moment, the Green New Deal kind of tried to, to articulate that. It was, um, you know, there the signs and the sit-in were green jobs for all, which is a little, um, they got the for all part, right? Um, <laughs> I'm not sure if we can, everyone can have green jobs, but but um, uh, then then I, you know, I personally think when they rolled out the, the resolution AOC, the one that was, you know, was a non-binding resolution that they put, introduced into Congress, you know, it like called for, you know, everyone has a life-sustaining wage, everyone gets this amount of vacation, everyone gets healthcare. And it was a very, you know, whatever, social democratic uh, platform, but it was at least like, just again, like very clear, Yeah, this program um, will improve uh, your life on a mass scale. And they're, and they're talking about universal public goods. Yeah. And to me, that was where we needed to go. Um, yeah. And it, um, yeah, so the article is kind of like pointing out that we may have lost sight of that kind of initial impetus. And yeah. now we're kind of in a kind of different space, I think, that's you know, frustrating. Yeah, and something I noticed that's uh, consistent in a lot of your work is that you critique the authorship of these movements and the authorship, uh, the class composition of movements whether it's the Green New Deal or um, kind of the technocratic solutions of the Obama era and now what we're, what we're going to have with uh, Biden. Um, and I can't help but thinking too, like with the Green New Deal, it was an attempt to make a mass appeal. But at the end of the day, I mean, it was also authored by kind of a, a PMC and like NG, green NGO yes. class. You know, that's where AOC is from of that um, kind of milieu. Um so in your article, you also talk about um, how the early Green New Deal is contrasted against uh, the Obama era technocratic solutions. Um, you bring up a think tank called Evergreen, which mm -hmm. um, is kind of, uh, it came out of the, the Jay Inslee political campaign. And something that really struck me is that uh, you talked about how the, uh, the current crop of climate stuff is being infused with what is called moral minoritarianism. Uh, and we had uh, George Hoare yeah. actually on the podcast, right? After he wrote that article, uh, which is cool. But um, so it's kind of like this new dimension to this means tested, wonky, uh, you know, very, very um, disconnected from the working class kind of thing. But they infuse it with this moral minoritarianism, moral minoritarianism uh, that has. Um, a lot of optics where they consult with representatives of different communities and uh, they, they get the outcome that they want, but you know, it's, it's not uh, a mass movement. Um, so to you, like how hard is it to explain that to people? Um, because it looks like they're consulting with 
the members of the different communities and the different constituencies? Like, how hard is it to explain that to people and fight against? Like, what people? I mean, like, explain to which people? I guess. Well, mean- I mean, if we're if we're gonna build a mass movement uh, yeah. for of the working class, right? You know, for, for many for many people, they they see oh well, they are consulting the community, and you know, many people yeah. don't believe they have the well, right I, to be consulted. I think that yeah, the, the big disconnect is that it it gives the appearance of having like the public consent and public input, but it's really just it's the same thing as focus groups where they just sort of get a slice of the public and then kind of cater their messaging to kind of what the public wants to hear to make it seem like they have all this public input I right I, I mean what 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 do you is that i don't get a sense they even have a vision of the mass public that they're trying to even reach yeah <laughs> like yeah. the the when you look at a lot of the literature and the evergreen stuff it's all about the, what they call justice centered uh, approach and they talk about economic inclusion and they talk about fairness and equity and these buzzwords which yeah I argue are more again about um, the kind of moral signaling to within professional class NGO milieus than actually even engaging with these. So, so the whole thing that they're interested in is, is, is really centering. That's a word (laughs) centering (laughs) the, the kind of most marginalized um, communities and what are often climate climate space that they use the word space like this Uh, (laughs) you've heard all the exact right (laughs) phrases and keywords we have come across those phrases so many times it makes you nauseous so in the space they they like to say frontline communities right yeah the ones that are most impacted by the fossil fuel infrastructure the the climate and also climate change impacts are disproportionately affecting so these um so this kind of language really is about like these marginalized communities that are kind of left behind by the system and the whole idea of economic inclusion sort of assumes the majority are kind of doing fine in the normal economy we just need to kind of include yeah um these these left behind uh marginalized folks right and and i i don't want to get in trouble because Obviously, no, please <laughs> say know, all like, the bad things. <laughs> you know, like what they're talking about are some of the most impoverished and environmentally um, damaged communities. And, and, and obviously we want to improve the lives of, of these communities, but it's, 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 you know, to do so, you actually need to build the kind of power that could actually confront the, the corporations that are actually poisoning those frontline communities or those environmental justice communities and my argument is that to do so you actually do have to speak to a broader um coalition a broader mass uh working a working class kind of politics and again it doesn't seem like they're even trying to do that they're 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 talking more about um kind of uh this sort of minoritarian inclusion kind of thing so well, that you're you're right. They're appealing to this kind of like PMC upper middle class, like NGO academic sphere, um, yes. because those are the people they're trying to reach. I think those are the ones who are going to be donating, volunteering, yes. voting. <laughs> you know, 
these are the ones who are kind of engaged. This is the target audience, right? Like it, the, the target audience isn't actually the people that need the help. The target audience is the people who feel bad for the people who need the help the most, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. No, yeah. No, and in and, and the PMC space, um, you know, the, it's a language of privilege, right? Like mm-hmm. everyone's sort of the masses of people have this sort of privilege, right? And, yeah. And, and we need to shed that privilege. Right. And, and but it's these, these really marginalized folks that are, you know, that we really need to center and bring to the include and all this kind of language. But, but um, I think that frame of mind kind of assumes that really it's the masses that we're part of, that we're all kind of privileged in our massiveness and our sort of ordinary <laughs> right, consumer right. lives that are kind of like boring and whatever. And, um, you know, that's just not accurate. You know, yeah. the masses of people are struggling, struggling and, and they need, um, uh, they need economic inclusion, but they don't want it to sound like that. They need sort of like broad, again, universal public goods that kind of right. um, would actually reach masses of people. Yeah, most people don't want to be like, you know, sort of racing to the bottom to be become one of these. Unless you're, there are some weirdos out there who are like, yes, I'm going to claim all these like disadvantaged, you know, things just so I can can be in the spotlight and they don't even really end up getting any of these resources that they're supposedly providing through these I, in your article you even mentioned this how means testing actually prevents resources from getting to the people who are supposedly being means tested for those resources in the first place so it's almost just a whole it's all optics it's all a farce it's all just sort of um show to maybe just to push through the same old legislation that's just going to keep keep the old meat grinder going keep keep business as usual going but sort of repackaging it every time right i think it's also a a sort of the goal is i mean they're not gonna succeed in passing anything significant with this kind of framing yeah it's it's, um you know the big thing that the whole climate movement kind of coalesced around this idea that um, okay, you, you know, first of all, we want Biden to, you know, this is before he was elected, but they're trying to shape the Biden climate plan. And they wanted it to be this many trillion. And it was all about how many trillion it is. And that's what really counts. But then the other thing was that they wanted 40% of the, of the 2 trillion or whatever it turned out to be to, to go to the frontline communities, right? <laughs> and that became like the most important thing. And, and no one seemed to bring up that that's exactly like that is means testing. That means yeah. you have to determine who is a frontline community. Right. You have to then <laughs> Biden actually put it into his plan. He was going to set up what something called the environmental justice screening tool <laughs> to, to actually determine which communities are disadvantaged yeah. enough to get the, the investments. And this is, you know, the kinds of policies that create divisions yeah. within the working class, they create resentments, they create all this kind of... Um, so it's like a win-win for those in power. <laughs> Not only do they get to meet out, you know, these tiny little incremental like, oh, thank us for giving you these things. But in, in doing so, they get to divide all those people who would normally band together and fight them. It's like a, yeah. a win-win for them, right? Yeah. You know, and... Uh, Another article that you wrote, um, I think it was 2019 in Catalyst Journal, you wrote about the ecological politics for the working class. That was the title of it. It's a really long article. Yes. I, you know, I, uh, I skimmed it, but I, I did find <laughs> some very interesting things um, because you, 
you identified um, two different kinds of environmentalism. So there's, I think we've been talking about livelihood environmentalism, uh, which uh, focuses and has the danger of fetishizing kind of the lived experience and relationship to the land that communities have um, and that they're making their living off, off the land. Uh, and then there's lifestyle environmentalism, uh, which is kind of the, the wonky um, uh, focus on individual economic footprints, uh, quantifying your personal impact, quantifying every choice that you make. Um, and uh, it's interesting because uh, in our community, so we live near where Indian Point was. We live like an hour and a half away from Indian Point, which RIP. Which was a, a nuclear plant <laughs> yeah. that powered New York City. Just yeah. so people who are listening who don't know what, yeah. what that Get, is. We've got an F going in chat for Indian <laughs> Point. Um, but also um, at the same time, you know, to replace that gap, uh, they're, they're proposing multiple um, fossil fuel powered plants in the area um, in frontline communities. So, you know, in Newburgh, for example, Newburgh is a city that's, I think, majority black, very poor. Um, and there's a plant called Danscammer that's been um, proposed for there. But in our neck of the woods, uh, up near Woodstock, there's the Ashokan Reservoir which is a giant man-made reservoir that um, provides all, most of the drinking water for New York City. Um, and so a company from California has proposed building a um, pumped hydro storage plant there that would put out about, I think, 800 uh, MW, is it megawatts or mega? Yeah, uh, it put out about 800 megawatts uh, of power. So it's a pretty big deal. Uh, and you can see um, in the opposition to this, like Woodstock, you know, it's near Woodstocks and Woodstock is one of the uh, most privileged, like Airbnb, second homeowner, uh, you know, crunchy old hippie kind of place, like very, very wealthy town. And they are going nuts about this. Yeah. Um, even though they're all very environmental, you know, and they're going on and on about the environmental impact about this, uh, even though these are also people that would also say like, oh, frontline communities are being hit too hard by these like, you know, fossil fuel plants. But at the same time, they don't want a green energy storage solution in their own community. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so uh, that's a long way of, of talking about livelihood environmentalism versus lifestyle environmentalism. Um, and I can't, you know, in your article, it then goes into degrowth, which I see as kind of the unholy child of those two things yeah. where people that want to quantify everything they do but also are fetishizing the lived experience and the relationship to the land that uh, some people have and, i mean do you think that's that's accurate am i on the right track <laughs> yeah yeah and i think the other part of livelihood environmentalism is is also communities that are suffering from pollution or they where they it's where they kind of have some clear material environmental thing in their lives that they're mm -hmm. struggling over <laughs> Um, and the point I was trying to make is that for the, again, I hate to, it sounds like I'm repeating myself, but for, for the masses of people, the main threat to their survival is not necessarily like pollution or losing their land or um, it's, the, it's the market. It's the, that they don't have yeah. enough money to eat. <laughs> yeah. They don't have enough money to pay rent. And so um, that kind of, the, the, the sort of fixation that like we want to center environmental politics on the only in these kind of communities that are struggling with clearly environmental things, you're just sort of 
sort of like leaving out the masses of people under capitalism, which the main struggle is um, over yep. money. And uh, so, you know, like that's, it's really, it's frustrating that the, these people are, are, are opposing um, clean hydropower in, in their community, um, especially, you know, it'd be interesting though to see if they, if they are really sort of PMC people <laughs> to, to actually, to because they love this stuff, like to do the life cycle analysis and, and again, do that kind of quantitative wonky stuff and actually yeah. go and try to tell them like, if, if you don't set up this hydropower, it is gonna lead to um, fossil fuel plants in poor uh, communities of color you know, that might be the way to, to win them over to the yeah. hydropower. I've been barking up that tree. Uh, I've been trying, I've been putting out some test balloons. That That's not working so far because people believe one of the solutions proposed is that everyone just needs to put a little battery in their house and that'll match the, uh, <laughs> that'll match the, uh, the 800 megawatts. <laughs> it's well, a, that, you know, you know yeah. the pumped hydro is a storage. It's the idea of we need storage. So the alternative to that is batteries. Um, yeah. But yeah, the, the, in Elon Musk will like that plan. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wrote a Jacobin already... article way long ago about Elon Musk's Powerwall idea, which is that everyone will have a battery in their house. Yeah. Well, and there you go. It, it's like the automobile of electric, electricity. It's like everyone's going to have their private power source. Like they have a private car. Like it's just going to completely privatize electricity so that, and, all, and if you just think about, and think of all the the opportunities to customize your battery. You know, you could put like your favorite Mar Marvel heroes on on your battery. Yeah, the licensing your... opportunities are tremendous. <laughs> I, yes, endless endless opportunities here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and also, uh, yeah. The other thing too is that this is a town where like everyone has a solar panel on the roof. Uh, there's we have the most Teslas per capita of New York State. Uh, here in Ulster County. Uh, so, you know, it, it's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. And um, everyone believes that their individual choices uh, will allow us to not build this plant here. And we'll just not think about where the power comes on when we turn on the lights. Also, yeah, and the other half of it too is um, people are proposing that we need to change our consumption, our energy consumption. And we need to educate people that, you know, turn off, turn off the lights or, you know, try not to en enjoy the, the heat in the summer, you know, don't mm -hmm. turn on the air conditioning all day. Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of leads us into degrowth, which is um, a program that uh, would rely, would, in addition to like, um, you know, building, having to build lots of uh, uh, green energy sources, it would also rely on a major lifestyle shift for the entire population of of earth basically and th and that's what like the degrowth movement seems like to me it seems like a, a consumer movement like a uh, consumer choice movement and i know you argue with a lot of the degrowthers on twitter which yeah. is awesome good for you they've they've been they've been yeah. sicked on me before and they are not you're fine. doing the good work they, they do swarm they, swarm. <laughs> they do they have a swarm they're not as bad as like the k-hive but yeah. <laughs> I've been spared interacting with them, but I've heard stories. Yeah, same, same. <laughs> but uh, I forgot where I was going with that. Yeah, I mean, 
it really it it does seem like it always comes down to this like consumer choice moral moral yeah. choice um, i mean i think they also propose um you know the local kind of um communitarian type of projects that would be like you know like bicycle co-op or <laughs> a, like a, a you know urban gardens or, or these kinds of like yeah um, and these things are like they're like nice i mean they're nice but they yeah. don't they don't fucking solve problems for like you know people who are struggling who have to work like six gig working economies just to pay yeah. their like rent they're like two thousand dollars a month rent yeah you know? and you know if, if we had like fully automated you know socialism or communism or something like yeah. i'd like to think and we had all people's material needs taken care of i'd like to think people would have the free time to yeah. like do gardens and to do right. art, art collectives and all that kind of stuff would be wonderful yeah, totally but if you're but if you're if you're expecting that kind of production small scale artisanal yeah to, to provision society <laughs> like that's not a solution and, yeah um and and they also you know they'll say we we want a shorter work week too they want that yeah but they don't seem to have any sort of material understanding of like what what production would we need to set right. up to yeah. allow people to have shorter work yeah. weeks and and it, right it requires a lot say, of industrial productions that yeah. they don't want to really look at Right. And I'll say really quick from your article. So you uh, you kind of go back um, and trace the roots of this the modern degrowth movement, um, and you bring up um, the Club of Rome's 1972 limits to growth. Um, you mentioned Paul Ehrlich, who yeah. um, was kind of a crude Malthusian uh, Malthusian at the time, mm -hmm. saying that we have too many people. Um, you also mentioned uh, William Catton's overshoot which explained how human resource use had overshot the carrying capacity of the earth and that a mass die-off was Im imminent. <laughs> um, and then you, you tie that into um, austerity, uh, which is like an Alan Greenspan kind of thing. Um, and, a, and an overall critique in the 70s when the, um, the environmental movement was swelling, like Earth Day happened for the first time, um, it all kind of got shoved into this critique of affluence and overconsumption. Yeah. Uh, and then you can trace that to today, today where the modern, um, the modern fusing of that is with lo this localism and degrowth movement, uh, which have the roots in this kind of 70s overconsumption Malthusian thing. Um, so you propose in the article that we need uh, to counter that we need a working class environmental program. Um, and I know we talked about the Green New Deal before, but uh, you know what in, in your mind like what uh what what can people do <laughs> what, what is there any hope or is this something that we're going to be spectators to of watching like you know this stuff is all like adopted by the ruling class um the working class does not seem to be engaged with with any of the uh climate proposals on the on the table right now yeah um and the, the key is, and I put this in the newer catalyst piece, is that, um, you know, the Green New Deal was great. Like I said, it had all these kind of things uh, that the working class should want, right? Like free health care and um, paid vacation time. Um, a thing I like to, you know, is just center on decommodifying basic needs, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's what Medicare for All is. It's about decommodifying health care. 
but also some parts of the Green New Deal we're talking about decommodifying housing and guaranteeing housing to people. That would be a big step, you know? Yeah. Even just rejuvenating the idea of public housing would be like huge. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when you, when you put this into a congressional non-binding resolution and, and you have placards that say green jobs for all or Medicare for all, you know, that's one thing. But to actually, I think, win uh, the working class, you have to deliver <laughs> material gains that yeah. they see in their lives. And so that to me, is, it's, a, it's obviously a chicken or egg thing. Like you, people aren't going to start believing this kind of politics that, you know, for instance, Bernie was saying, you know, like we're going to take on the rich and we're going to deliver universal goods to you and it's going to be great people aren't going to believe that um particularly in the wake of decades of austerity and defeat for the working class they're not going to believe that unless you start to actually win Mm. you start to deliver these material gains to them so to me that um the left climate movement really has to kind of have a kind of litmus test that we should be getting behind um only you know, programs or, or policies or, you know, demands that, that, um, that we think we can win and that we think we will actually start to deliver yeah. these material gains so that people start believing again that politics yeah. is possible and that, and that actually large scale social change against the rich can be achieved because <laughs> yeah. there's not much evidence in people's lives that that's possible. I think personally, that's why I I don't think that the left should even have talk about, you know, environmental stuff as much because because really like those other material needs need to be met first that the the economic issues need to be addressed first and foremost. That's the universal thing. That's the problem that needs to be solved. And then from there, we can we can say, oh, you know what, let's reduce this and that this and that. But until then, can I say something about that though? Which yeah. is just like incredibly, like how did that happen though? How do we start to think of the environment as like separate from people's lived needs, material yeah. needs? Like right. how is the environment not material? And and it's because this kind of history right. of of making the environment this kind of abstract, yes. separate thing that, that 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 like sort of bougie people advocate yeah. for that's out there, but like. I mean, like all the things about people's material needs, housing, transportation, healthcare, uh, food, food, <laughs> like th- all these things yeah. are connected to the environment. If we could transform those sectors, like we actually, that's what you need to do to actually solve the environmental crisis. You need to transform the very sectors that are at the core of right. people's material needs. Right. Well, I think the, the answer to that question is uh, there's, it's, Malthusian roots, you know, it's this idea that humans are separate from nature um, and that we're some sort of disease on nature and that there's too many of us and we're taking up too much resources. I mean, that's what degrowth is a a Malthusian idea. And and people don't, they want to argue that away and, and litigate that point away. But really at its root, the environmentalism stuff is rooted in this idea that humans are just this scourge on the earth and Marxist economics or egalitarian economics or humanitarian economics are quite the opposite. They say, no, humans are good and every single one of them 
is valuable and deserves X, Y, and Z. And we must, you know, abundance lead from that perspective, not from one of like humans are bad and we need to like control them and fear them. And and that's why I see these things as inextricably linked. Um, And it's, it's a hard argument to make because people say, Oh, don't you love, don't you love nature? You know, mother earth and nature and this and that. What's that? Hiking. Hiking, right. That was, you haven't gone somebody, hiking in a while. Somebody huh? accused me the other day of not liking hiking, but uh, if you've ever been to the Hudson Valley, that's like the number one thing to do here. Living right next to the Catskills is like to go hiking. So, I, I mean, that's the thing is like, you don't have to, you can like care about the planet, but we have to fix the economic stuff first. Like it, it has to be rooted in that. Otherwise, it's it, you're right. It's just like policy wonkery, or it's it's just rebranding the same the same thing. Yeah, I teach my students. I teach an intro to environment society class, and I teach them about I call it the salvage impulse, and it's this idea that we need to like create these little pockets of nature that we <laughs> quarantine off from society, and, and yeah. call it like a park or a wilderness zone. Green space. Yeah, green space. And, and I feel like the whole impulse of that is premised on the idea if we let humans just hmm. grow, that they'll just gobble up all the nature. So we literally have to like create these little nature zones. And like that in itself is such a weird yeah. cultural thing that, that, um, that only these industrial societies do because they have this kind of romantic reaction to yeah. the industrial destruction. And they think the only way to solve it is to create these little like nature zones in the outskirts. And not deal with like, you know, you know, the industrial system itself, yeah. which, you know, could, needs to be made greener or whatever needs to be made more ecologically sound. But you have, as you said, you have to like confront that at yeah. the belly of the beast before you can think you can solve it by kind of saving nature outside of it. Yeah. And why do you think that uh, degrowth is so popular among the kind of academia and green NGO set, which obviously is not the working class, but why, why is it so popular? I mean, obviously you have, you do have a job for yourself, but um, if you had picked, if you had picked to advocate for degrowth, you know, maybe you'd be like writing best-selling books and like, you know, it's like a popular ideology right now, I'd say among like a certain class of people. Um, so why do you think it's taken on? Uh, why do you think it's, it's gotten to the point that it has uh, in terms of having so much purchase among the PMC and, the billionaires that, that fund NGOs, they seem to like it too. Um, I think it's it's emerged out of a particular sort of regime capitalism and moment in history where, you know, um, really, you know, what we saw in the post-World War II era was actually an explosion of what you would call professional managerial occupations um you had the explosion of higher education you had the explosion of uh increasingly creden- credentialed workforce um that were what you know marxists and the old we call mental mental workers as opposed to manual workers hmm. and um and this professional class uh pro- professional managerial class that exploded it you know was also exploding at the very time where industrial production was um, automating and offshoring and, and sort of deindustrializing, and so um, 
you get this class of, of people that have um, also sort of bought into this kind of post-World War II kind of like, you know, middle-class dream or whatever, like you're gonna, you know, um, you're gonna get a car and a house and you're gonna consume in this kind of very private way. <laughs> um, have these kind of forms of what I call like privatized provisioning where you're kind of like living in these little atomized suburban spaces. Yeah. And so the, that kind of experience of the class, professional class, professional managerial class living in the suburbs, living these kind of mass consumption lifestyles, um, for many of them led to a kind of simultaneous anxiety yeah. about, um, about the ecological crisis and feeling like, um, oh my God, like I'm participating in the ecological crisis. And, and because this class is prone to a kind of a narcissism, uh -huh. <laughs> I think, they, they also concluded that they themselves were the cause of the ecological crisis, <laughs> and, and it, which is totally wrong. It's, it's capital. It's the cause. Like it's yeah. not these petty bourgeois people in the suburbs. Making but, it all about them. <laughs> it's all about them. And so they, they, they created this, this politics that was all about less, right? A politics of less, like scaling down. Of small is beautiful. Less and small is beautiful. And, and that really resonated with this class, right? Um, and, um, and this class itself was just fundamentally, again, separate from material production. And um, it's that separation which made them anxious about mm. like, and I think a lot of their politics is also like, like sort of doing this weird, like we're gonna like study <laughs> what production is and we're gonna discover through, again, these commodity chain analysis or life cycle analysis, we're gonna like discover the truth of production and find that it's, it's, it has all these problems and there's mm -hmm. all these costs and they, it, it leads to all these, you know, again, this pollution for frontline communities. And so most of their experience of production was studying it, <laughs> learning about it. Yeah. And knowing it and then and then reprimanding it as like environmentally bad um, in this very kind of distant way. Um, so there's a lot more I could say, but that's kind of my short story about that's class like, formation. That's such a perfect, like thorough answer. Cause like what I my answer to that question is just like they have so much like excess in their own lives because they're sort of a more priv a privileged class that they feel kind of like guilty about it. But like the way you answer that is like, yeah, that totally makes sense. Like the history of this class of people, how they think about things, how they're detached from material reality and production and all that. And they have this time to just sort of think about things and they're like, oh, well maybe, you know, it's like the, what is that phrase? The, the uh, idle hands, the devil's or the devil's playground or something. And they're, they just have all this idle time to sort of machinate about like these problems. I don't know. And then they've turned it into this, like this big boogeyman, this, like what you said in the beginning, where it's like, this like the end of the yeah. world or something. Yeah. I mean, Lee Phillips calls it uh, disaster porn addicts. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're on, they're on dis disaster porn hub uh, all day and disaster porn you know, hub. <laughs> fantasizing about what, what they could, what they would do, you know? Right. Yeah. Collapse porn is the, the, the subtitle. Yeah. It's great turn yeah. phrase. Colla um, we could go on and on about collapse porn. These the, again, that's like our neck of the woods is we got our, our billionaire daddy, Peter Buffett. He's preparing for the collapse of capitalism here. <laughs> Well, yeah, that, that's the starting point um, for 
for a lot of this too, this feeling of impending collapse, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and Schumacher and the small is beautiful and yeah. Yeah. I just, I recently got into a little conversation with someone in Twitter who's really advocating the small farm lifestyle, right. That, and his, and I was just like saying like his program was to turn, um, millions of people into peasants. (laughs) And and, and, And I was like, you know, like, that's not going to win people over. People don't want to be farmers. People, And he goes, well, regardless of whether or not they want it, it's coming for them. Yeah. Oh my God. It, and it and that's how these people think. They Saying think the quiet part out like loud. The science <laughs> shows us that this, this impending doom is coming. So all we can do is kind of, they, they often like prefigure the lifestyle that, that mm. we need to, to survive this impending collapse. And that's kind of how they think, right? That's it's almost on the like whole... a, a new feudalist society, like some kind of neo-feudalist society. Yeah, <laughs> that's on the homepage. If you look, the Novo Foundation is the preempt. I mean, they're the ones uh, that are doing this kind of localist experiment in our community. Uh, if you go to the homepage of their website, it's coming soon. But um, one of the sentences on there, it just says pre-construction, working on solutions now so old patterns of power can't once again reform to rebuild and continue to repress. And that's really their whole, they have this kind of Promethean belief that um, they know they know what's coming and they need to kind of ease our transition into this new, uh, some call it neo-feudalism, some people call it regenerative economics. New economy is a big one yeah, too. A new economy. Just um, transition. Transition yeah. towns. Is yes, yeah. yep. Cause I studied oil for my dissertation. So I got all upset, like all, I didn't get obsessed, but I got captured by these kind of peak oil people too. Who, yeah. Who it's the of, same group. And the transition town movement kind of came out of this idea that peak oil is coming. So yep. we're, we're going to have to relocalize because we have no more oil. And yeah, then fracking happened there. They, they got quiet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's this idea that uh, we have like these limited resources and we need mm-hmm. to, I hear that over and over again. That's like the argument is that we have these limited finite resources on an or infinite growth on a finite planet, something like that. But it's like, I don't know. What do you, what is your take on, on that argument? Well, again, I studied oil for my dissertation and I kind of was trying to kind of figure this out for myself. And I was mm-hmm. kind of like, wow. And I was doing this in the early mid two thousands, uh, when oil prices were spiking. So I was kind of like, maybe we are at peak oil. It's freaking me out. <laughs> um, but then the more I, I studied it, um, you, you find in the history of oil, like the real problem in the oil market is not scarcity or not too little oil. It's, it's abundant. It's too much oil that, that it overproduction and glut that mm. kind of leads to price collapses. And so you start to study the history of oil and you see there's been all these mechanisms and institutions that have been set up to manage production of oil, to keep it limited, to get them to stop producing so much oil hmm. so that they cannot overproduce the market and collapse prices. So, you know, it started actually in um, Texas where they um, they literally had to call in the National Guard to get people to stop producing oil because they, hmm. they discovered the biggest oil field in the Great Depression. Hmm. And, they, and they set up something called the Texas Railroad Commission, all these things to kind of limit how much oil was produced. And then that is what inspired OPEC to, 
to form as this kind of bunch of countries that got together to try to limit each other's oil output. And again, it's not just oil. You look at food commodities, you look at any natural resources, and the problem under capitalism is abundance. It's too mm. much stuff. It gets overproduced, the market crashes. And so, um, you know, it's it again, shows the insanity of our system where the problem is too much stuff while you also have all these people suffering of hunger and not having enough energy and all this kind of stuff alongside that abundance. So. Right. Yeah. Uh, you had a, you had a back and forth with um, Jason Hickel that I thought was so interesting. Jason Hickel is like a huge promoter of um, he's a, he's I'd say a, he's a thought leader. Of, he's a thought of, leader. Yeah. yeah. He kind he's of an, owns that terrain. In he's the an space. influencer. In, yeah. in that space. He's definitely thought leader. He is in the space. He's the blue check in that space, but he frames the, the, which you had such a good back and forth with him. Um, you were right about everything you said, where he frames it as um, the, the degrowth that all the leftists want, the good degrowth, <laughs> <laughs> is where uh, we stop growing in the global north, but we, we you know, basically redistribute our fund, our, our growth, our resources to the, the global south. And it, and it frames it as like the, the rich countries in the North. Yes. And, and you're so spot on in, in your back and forth where you say, it's not whole, you can't just say rich countries because not everyone in this country is rich. You know, it's yes. like, yeah. it's so misleading. It's saying that this is a problem of like everyone in the North is just so, we have so much abundance, but it's, yeah. Like we, you know, we talked about before, like there's people in this country that are struck. Most people in this country are struggling. Yes. So to, to, to tell people that we need to like the whole North, is just totally like needs to redistribute to the South. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, like they, they create this, it's all about global North versus global South. And, um, it's, you know, that's not the class struggle on the, on the planet. It's not between territories or countries, it's between classes. And yeah. There's actually a lot of rich people in the global South too that right. are right. doing great. And, yeah. Um, so they're going to capture, they're going to do the elite capture of the uh, the redistribution that happens towards there. They're, they're the ones sure. positioned to capture those resources. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, obviously the global north has got more rich people, I'll, I'll give them that, um, but uh, it's, it's, it's just, and I, I recently saw him tweet out something about how, you know, the industrialization has moved to the global south and, and actually it's the rich countries that appropriate the value from the workers in the global south. And I was like, wait a minute, it's not the countries that do that, it's the capitalists right. who employ yeah. those workers in the factory. <laughs> Come on, it's Marx. Yeah. And, and it's 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 unbelievable that like suddenly like the villain in this frame of thinking has become whole countries. Like you rich countries are now our target. Like that's what we need to get to, to degrow and how we need to, but like those are unequal entities. Like it's, it's no, also, America is bad and everyone in it is terrible and <laughs> 
I also want to <laughs> applaud you because when you do get into back and forths with him, he has like an army of just sycophants that are liking all the stuff. So you'll see his tweets have like 110 likes and then Matt's in there like getting like six likes. I gotta but, go in there you know, and like all of Matt's But you're, you won the debate in like, in my eyes. And, uh, and it wasn't much of a back and forth. I don't think you even we all, really we all need to one. We all need to applaud you for your efforts because, I, you know, yeah. Hanging in there against the blue check mark. Well, and he brings up this thing called he he says this word called growthism. He says growth. What the fuck is growthism? You know, (laughs) (laughs) and you you correctly said the problem is an economy oriented around profit, not growthism. Whatever the fuck that means. I I'm the one who said whatever the fuck that means. You didn't say that. No, it's you meant it though. (laughs) The problem with all the degrowthers is. GDP growth is a is a construction that does it is I think growthism is a thing it's it's an ideology that 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 says that when GDP growth goes up all of society is good uh-huh. right like you see this in the business press GDP right. growth up that must mean everyone's doing fine right right and it it obscures the incredible inequality in society so it's good for them because they're hoarding all the resources yeah. it would be it would be good for everyone if if there wasn't that like you know block in the dam of <laughs> the profits exactly. if we were, yeah if we, that's where the problem is is that distribution of that gdp growth yes and they don't want to but instead want, of yeah. like looking at the way in which it obscures inequality and articulating the politics that would redistribute and and actually be about more for the masses of people right that would that should be the goal yeah just flip it they say well you say we, we want gdp growth we want degrowth they just like negate it right right, and, right. And so they're on the terrain of the ideology of, of growthism they're just like they're in that same ideology they're like stuck in this like right so it's not it's not looking outside of the reality of the capitalist structure it's it's sort of trying to operate within it and not offering a solution solution it's just sort of trying to create bad guys within the system Mm -hmm. to say oh you're just capitalism is fine the way we're doing things is fine it's just you have to be a nicer guy about it you have to you have to do it in a nicer way yeah (laughs) and also i mean i think the degrowth uh, movement kind of forecloses on the idea of, of a mass politics. It's already given up on mass politics and they see that the only people that need to be convinced of it are elites and people that are in control of the resources. And then everyone else, well, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what the working class thinks about it because it's something that will be imposed on them, which is why I, f- I find it to be like kind of compatible with like you know, some people call it the great reset, or it's just kind of like the, um, you know, the, what you hear at the World Economic Forum is that the people that run the world are doing degrowth. They're doing a version of it where, you know, we're, we're all, they, they believe that someday we'll all own nothing and that everything will be a subscription service. Everything will be delivered to us. Um, so yeah, I mean it's all it's all it's not even like an alternative to that. It it works hand in hand with it. Um, some people believe that their special version of degrowth is is the real one or the one that uh, you know the leftist kind. But functionally, it, it's all moving towards a direction where elite people and people that control the resources are going to like 
impose austerity on, on everyone else. Yeah. I, I, I've said to them on a lot of venues, like the problem is that your, your program is not going to resonate with the masses to actually, to, to win your program, which they do, you know, Jason Hickel argues for like public goods. He, he says we should decommodify all these sectors and we should increase public goods, which I'm all in favor. I think that's yeah. great. But if you're, if your program is like, again, leading with less and, and focusing on reductions and less and all this stuff, you're not going to win. You're not gonna be able to win the kind of majoritarian uh, forces to actually beat back the power that's blocking those policies. Right. Yeah. And so when I brought this up, one of them pointed out that they had just written a paper and I, I'll put it in the chat. It's called degrowth in state. And <laughs> I actually read it recently and I was sort of blown away because first of all, it's written in 2020 and it's, it's sort of funny because they're like, we have discovered that no one in the degrowth literature is really taking seriously the question of state states and state power. Oh, good. <laughs> and <laughs> which is like, you know, like where a lot of us in the socialist left have been thinking really seriously about how, what should our relationship to state power be? But they're like, we have not even thought about this. Yet. That's because they're all they're all in NGO world. They're all yes. like either in academia or, or uh, civil society. And they point out that, that the reason for that is most of degrowth uh, philosophy and activism comes out of anarchism. So they sort of admit that in the article. <laughs> and and but then the other thing they say is we need to they 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 read very well and they they say we need to bring up like a Gramscian approach to to sort of winning state power. And so they advocate for this in the article. But their whole theory is that what's going to happen is we're going to start these degrowth uh, uh, projects that are going to happen in communities, right? And they say that we're just going to try to attract participants. And the participants are going to start to spread the good word about these projects. Oh, my God. And, 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 and that's going to just sort of cascade and create a new common sense. That's what's happening in our town. Campaign. It's a mark. That's all it is. It's a marketing and it's, campaign. It's like their theory, their agent of change is, participants in yeah. their degrowth projects and it's just like no and, and, it's and that's no what and it has uh yeah. because their their goal is about raising consciousness there are no there is no quantifiable anything to it not that i'm being like oh it has to all be quantified but um they can believe that they're doing the good work every day of their life and they'll be totally satisfied and be a true believer about it uh it's a personal Without, fulfillment thing. Yeah, because he, like here in Kingston, like, you know, we are we are the I, I believe we are the preeminent uh, degrowth slash localism experiment in the entire world in this town. And all it has brought is just hyper gentrification and a utopian lifestyle for the upper middle class and above right. um, the people, the working class people that were here uh, either, you know, are alienated and not included in this whole thing or they're gone yeah uh and we're and they but they built something you know some of them were like coerced or tricked or some into like volunteering and building something that now you know well-resourced people are coming in and enjoying um i i do not see a movement building i see us attracting <laughs> attracting people to move into really nice real estate but um I, I don't see it, but you're seeing participants, aren't you? So we are there. Are, yeah, there, are, there are more participants every day for sure. But I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's like a, a viral thing that's going to spread the way they, they believe it is. 
Well, they also, they really do see it as a like an ideological battle, right? Um, and that they need to beat the ideology of growth. And so it makes perfect sense that they want to create memes and, but, but it also shows it's like a very idealist program. That's like, like yeah. the problem with our society is this, you know, ideological fixation on growth as if that's the problem and not the fact that a small minority of people control all the wealth and property and yeah. production. So, I mean, what are you working on now? Is there anything uh, in the pipeline for you where that you're working on? Well, I have a, the, 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 this book I've been working on that a lot of the ideas we've been talking about are kind of in it, but it's, it's just on class and climate politics. And um, to try to sum it up very briefly, it's just about, um, you know, it's three parts. <laughs> the first part is we, for climate change, we have to blame the capitalist class for causing it. So we have to actually trace um, who owns and profits from material production uh, to being the culprits, right? Who are responsible for this problem and not think it's all about dispersed consumers and carbon footprints. And um, the second part is that climate politics itself has been captured by the professional class who's, as we've been talking about, academics, NGOs, uh, scientists, journalists, these types of people are who drive the discourse around climate politics. And that's um, limiting a kind of working class climate politics, which is what the third part tries, tries to articulate um, and tries to, you know, um, also talk about like building union union movements in the electric sector, which is the very sector we need to actually transform to yeah. to uh, solve the crisis. So. Do Do you think? Uh, I mean, this is why your book probably is important. But my my opinion, and you know, I'm kind of an ex DSA person. I don't I don't mean to sound bitter or anything, but I don't think that DSA <laughs> has a a clarity about this stuff um, that is needed um, because. You know, for example, if you look at like New York State DSA, um, people seem to both be into the idea of Green New Deal, but also degrowth at the same time. Yeah. How how is that how is that happening? Like what what uh, what is causing that kind of like disconnect or di dialectic or something? Well, I should be careful as a as a still DSA person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't mean and I don't mean to like yeah talk shit or anything but obviously like no no we're not we're not where we need to be to like do any of this stuff so like what's no it's mind, like what's causing that kind of disconnect it's absolutely true that i'd say most of like the people who call themselves eco-socialists are very much enamored with the degrowth um framework um and that's problem yeah. <laughs> uh and, and why and it's, it's all good stuff <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately uh well, if I, I think actually, I think a good thing about DSA is the multi-tendency nature. So it is a big tent and it allows, so for, for whatever it's worth, you know, like I'm able to be in DSA, I'm able to, you know, I wrote a piece in the DSA publication called Socialist Forum called Eco-Socialism Dystopian and Scientific. It's one of my favorite titles. It's a play on Ingalls. And uh, it basically tried to call out all the, anti-industrialism of degrowth eco-socialists and you know it made them very angry but at least like there's debate and um you know um i feel like there's other dsa people that 
more agree with the kind of anti-austerity um, working class environmental politics that I've been talking about. So unfortunately, it's, um, you know, there's, there's divisions on these questions in DSA. Um, uh, and we can just try to try to try to kind of build hegemony for the obviously right <laughs> position. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm know. surprised you're this article got in, into Catalyst, which is a, isn't that a uh, Jacobin? That's a yes. Jacobin publication. So, yeah. which is basically DSA. Yeah. So I'm surprised that like, you know, something so critical of um, degrowth and whatnot, Maybe this well, is their maybe this is their their side thing for like the the naughty people and the naughty thoughts. I don't know. No, I, I you know again, <laughs> Jacobin has a lot of people who are um, very much into the. <laughs> it's so polarizing now. On like, yeah, but there's you know the people that tend to be like we need to worry about the kind of um, professional class and PMC nature of the left are heavily represented in Jacobin as mm -hmm. well and Catalyst in particular, mm. um, which is why some parts of the Jacobin Catalyst stuff does anger a lot of the more, um, uh, you know, I would say more PMCFI left of, of Jacobin. So it's very complicated. Mm. It's all the, when you say Jacobin or DSA, you, you're talking about very um, amorphous multi-tendencies and different perspectives within those things. For sure. For yeah. sure. Yeah, no, we've, we've been critical of, of the publication at large, but I think that there's still like a lot of really good stuff that's written for Jacobin. That's the thing, right? Is that everyone ha has their own contribution to make um, to the bigger picture here. So it's never, and, and too, like, you know, talking about like, well, we should blame the capitalists for um, the ecological problems. I'd go so far as to even say, let's blame capitalism. Let's not even say it's like, you know, s individuals who are making this decision. It's the system yeah. that's incentivizing yeah. certain behaviors um, and that rewards people, yeah. the people who participate in, in it more. So um, it really should be a, I lean more towards on that systemic critique. I know it's very popular to like hate on individuals and say, oh, so-and-so is bad and blah, yeah. blah, blah. But it, it really is more of a, I think, a systemic critique than an individual. Yeah. But I, I actually think the, the ecological socialists are upset. They, that's all they say. They say capitalism. They say system change. We need mm. system change, not climate change. They say capitalism is the problem. And they're all about being anti-capitalism, but they have no sense that we actually have to defeat a class to, to bring right. the yeah, things true. we need. There's actually a class of people and um, that, right. that control everything and that we actually need to beat them. And it's not like this amorphous, I mean, I am all with this, this it is a system and I'm, you know, big, I teach volume one where Mark says like all the capitalists are just capital personified. They're just, you know, right. like, um, they're just structurally constrained by the system, but but, but actually we need to recover, I think, what the left used to have, which is what they were in a struggle against another class that controlled um, their, you know, that was, that was harming their life chances and that they had to actually beat them to improve their lives. And yeah. I think we've lost that just because class struggle has just evaporated from our society. So. You know, you're spot on with that because we do need to feel less sympathetic and empathetic towards our ruling class. I think we have too much empathy for our ruling class and not enough 
for each other. <laughs> so yeah. you know what? You're right. Let's let's vilify those motherfuckers a little <laughs> bit more so we can, you know, feel better about what needs to be no really what needs to be done because i think that's a big problem is nobody everyone the people a lot of people are comfortable and they don't want to confront what needs to actually be done and they want to just sort of do what they feel comfortable doing and that's about it but the change that we need in the world is not going to be comfortable (laughs) it's going to make a lot of people very uncomfortable. I, i don't know i mean to be fair like the uh the uh, hy- the pumped hydro storage plant will ruin my view of the reservoir from my Airbnb <laughs> property that I own, and that makes I don't know my lived experience makes that very uncomfortable for me. And I feel a lot of trauma about that. Yeah, about the, the income coming to the Airbnb too. Yeah, yeah it's good. That'll be another impact. Yes. <laughs> I'm trying to build generational wealth with that. But. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, eco-socialists. You've been listening to the Space Commune podcast. I'm Fox. I'm Alex. And we've been talking to Matt Huber. Um, Matt has done some really great research on degrowth and um, ecology. Um, what are we plugging here? We're plugging the, this latest article, Revenge of the Plans, which you can find on thetrouble.com. I'm going to put a link to a lot of Matt's work, a um, bunch of links in the description. Um, what else are we going to plug here? Follow Matt on Twitter. Follow Matt on Twitter. Like, like all it. of his yeah. comments when he gets into debates with people like Jason Hickel. Yeah, we need like a catchy name for like the Huber, the Huber Squad or something. I don't know. <laughs> the Huber Hive. The Huber, <laughs> the Huber Hive. Yeah, oh, we need, dear. I don't want any Matt, hives. When Matt, gets, <laughs> yeah, when Matt gets added by Jason Hickel or something, we the Huber Hive needs we'll to call on the up. Huber Hive. <laughs> <laughs> the Huber Hive will swarm in. Yeah. <laughs> We need swarms to attack the swarms. So. <laughs> That's right. It's the war of the Huber, swarms. Huber, dis- Huber destroys Same. the degrowth movement with facts and logic. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs>